How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I heard a funny thing. Maybe it's, it sounds funny to me. A sociologist was asked recently at a meeting I was at, why don't people go to church? And she said, because they're dead. And what she meant is, right? It, felt, it made us all laugh, but it, because it was so true. And But really, old people go to church and young people don't. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Bob Smetana. He's an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee who has become one of the most respected and well-known religion reporters in the country with more than two decades of experience in covering religion, spirituality, and ethics. He served as the senior writer for Facts and Trends, senior news editor for Christianity Today, and the religion writer at the Tennessean. He's currently a national reporter for Religion News Service where his wire service stories, which attract wide readership from laypeople, pastors, and scholars, have appeared in both secular and religious media, such as the Washington Post, USA Today, Christianity Today, and the Associated Press. Today we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. Bob Smetana, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So this book is mind-blowing for me. It helped me to understand some of the things that I've known in my bones but haven't really been able to put words to. So I can't wait to dive in and really get at the structure and the meat of this. But in order to do that, I want to set the table. And so that's going to be the first part of our conversation here. This book really breaks down into three main groups. We're talking about the way things were. We're talking about how things are and why they're breaking down. And we're talking about the future, what things might become. So let's start with that first phase. As we were moving into the COVID pandemic, 2019-2020, there were some markers that were already on the ground with regard to organized religion that I think will be helpful for our listeners to know about. What was the landscape 
if you will, right before and as we moved into the 2019 pandemic? So it's a landscape filled with change. One of the things I, I try and tell people is that everything in the world has changed all at the same time, all at once. And most of the religious institutions in America were built for the world that is passing away. So one way I like to describe this is I was born in 1965 in a country that was mostly white, mostly Christian, and really mostly Protestant, that where the nuclear family was the center of life, where men were in charge, where there was blue-collar economy that was very healthy and strong, and where the uh, where you could get a computer for $28,000 that would store 4,000 words, right? So... Well, I'm about to have a granddaughter. When my granddaughter is born, she's going to be born into a generation where half the kids aren't white, so there's no ethnic majority. It's a it'll be a multi-ethnic, pluralistic, egalitarian, LGBT affirming world, where the blue collar economy has disappeared, where you have a phone with the entire world at your fingertips, and that old world was a world where organized religion played a very important part. It was what you did. What good people did go to church or whatever kind of worship they did. In this new world, the fastest growing group of people are the so-called nuns, who are people who have no religion. So we're already in a world of incredible change. And being put on top of that, incredible technological, social, political, and economic change. So there's no wonder that everyone is freaking out. So everyone, we're in a period of decline of religion and a period where everything has come on more. So then we hit COVID, which has radically changed and accelerated all those declines. So a couple other kind of small numbers to throw out. So when I started covering religion in uh, 1999, the average congregation in America, the median congregation had 137 people, which is a good-sized congregation. So then that kind of congregation, you can afford to have a full-time clergy if you're Protestant. And you, in particular, because Catholic churches tend to be bigger. But you could have maybe a second clergy and a choir, and you had all kinds of margins. So if somebody can't be there today, you had a whole pool of people to do it. Now, the average congregation is 65 people, according to the Faith Communities Today study, which is a wide-ranging study of congregations. 65 people, you can maybe pay the bills, maybe afford your clergy, but not paying very much, but you're on the brink. And then that's the median number. So half the congregations in the country are smaller than 65. Once you get under 65 people, you get down to 40, 30. You're talking about survival mode and not being sustainable long-term. And so after COVID, then what COVID did was break the habit of church going for everybody, right? So now everybody has to start up over again and people have stopped going. People who used to go come, but they come less often. It's really changed everything. But all those trends were there before. It's a world of great change and decline. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bob Smetana, and we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. This is one of the statistics that really just knocked me back on my heels when I read it in your book, Reorganized Religion. You say at one point that the kind of bulwark of the churches that we're talking about as we were moving into the COVID pandemic in 2019, so 20 years after this statistic that you just named, where the median congregation size was 137 people in 1999, when we were moving into the pandemic, the bedrock of the church would be parishioners, churchgoers who were in their late 
agedness. So around 85. And the other members of the church, and this was the piece that really knocked me backwards, that we're talking about either people that go to church once a month or not at all on Sunday mornings. And so there's a vast discrepancy between that aging population and this younger generation. Talk to us a little bit about the friction that's there. So there's a lot of things going on. So actually, I heard a funny thing. Maybe it's, it sounds funny to me. A sociologist was asked recently at a meeting I was at, why don't people go to church? And she said, because they're dead. And what she meant is, right? It, felt, it made us all laugh but it, because it was so true. And But really, old people go to church and young people don't. That's kind of the big picture thing. So if a congregation has more funerals than baptisms, they're in trouble. And this is the problem for, it was kind of a, a billboard popular and sort of new and kind of exciting megachurches that this is not your grandmother's church. Well, the problem is that your grandmother's keeping the church alive. So we're seeing a lot of generational replacement, right? So older congregation members are, went to church, thought church was important. Younger folks, I mean, younger folks, younger folks are the least likely to go to church. And they are least likely to think religion is important in their lives. So there's a friction. The other friction is this. So among people who go to church, so in the old generation is mostly white, most Christian. The younger generation, if you go to church, let's talk about Christians in particular. So old, and Christians of color in the older generation were outnumbered seven or eight to one. So for every Martin Luther King, there were six or seven Billy Grahams. Now among people who go to church, Christians of color and white Christians are the same size. It changes the whole dynamic. So one of the real challenges for churches, other faith organizations is this, uh, you already had generational shift where you have every generation has a different idea than their parents. Now you have generational shift plus ethnic diversity shift and plus worldview shift. So it's a very different world when the, it's very hard older church members who are already thinking that young people are different to hand over everything they've built to a younger generation, which is going to be ethnically diverse and very different ideas about well, how the world should be, what their priorities should be, what the importance of church are, and all the kind of racial tension that's in the country, which is under, when, when people are outnumbered seven or eight to one, they make accommodations, right? Because they're not going to be in charge. When everybody's up here, then you start talking about real things. So all those real conversations are coming up. That's much harder because all of a sudden this older generation is realizing, wait, we are not as awesome as we thought we were. In fact, we thought we were really good people. We were trying to do the best we could and we fell short. And in parents, like I'm a, I'm a parent, not to be a grandparent, my kids have made it clear that I was a good parent, but there are lots of ways that I fell short. That's hard to hear. But it is hard for a whole generation to think, oh, wait, we were not as great as we thought we were. And we are going to hand the country over to new people who are going to do it things completely different. And this is one of the things I want to make sure that listeners understand is that when they come to your book, Reorganized Religion, they're going to encounter stories like this, where even pastors that are wanting to follow the flow of this demographic shift and reach out to younger audiences, they're receiving incredible pushback from their older congregation members, and in some cases have been disfellowshipped from their churches for doing this kind of thing. And so one thing that I'm getting from what you're saying is that we're looking at a model that was built for middle-aged white men, and we're no longer living in a demographic where the majority of Christians are middle-aged white men. It's much more diverse and pluralistic. Now, I just want to check in. Have I heard that correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's my, it's a world, a religious world that's built for white Christians, mostly. Men and women, right? The men were in charge, but men and women, 
And that it's no longer realistic to build religious institutions on white Christians. You can't do that anymore. They're going to decline. So if you look at every denomination that's declining, uh, that is white, right? So white mainline Christians. If I can add to that, there was a idea for a long time. The conservative churches grew, liberal churches shrunk. Now it's based mainly on the kind of shrinking of the mainline churches, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, that kind of thing. Well, now what we realized a lot of that shifting was due to birth rates. Those mainline churches started having, were having fewer kids and retaining fewer of their kids. Well, now every, deno- every denomination that is mostly white, Protestant, you know, evangelical. So if you're Southern Baptist, you're declining. If the Missouri Senate Lutheran, very, very conservative, you're declining. If you're the evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is progressive, you're declining. If you're the United Methodist Church, you're declining. So it doesn't matter where your theology is. If you're mostly white, you're declining. If you're white and Catholic, you're declining. The only reason the Catholic Church is not in free fall is because of the influx of Hispanic immigrants. That wasn't the case. Catholic Church would be a free fall. If you're built for a world, it's mostly white. And mostly white people who want to come to church. And now you're in a world where people, most people aren't white, or half of people aren't white, and they don't think church matters. You're in a different universe, and you've got to adapt to that. Well, and this is the thing that I want to make sure that my listeners understand is that the concentration of wealth and the ability to actually donate to support the programs of churches and even to keep churches afloat, that is still concentrated in this aging demographic. And they oftentimes do not like the changes that they see, even if a pastor is making these changes in order to make the church vibrant and inviting to younger generations, the wealth doesn't follow. Do I understand that dynamic correctly? There's some of that, yeah, the wealth and the power, but you have to hand over their wealth and power. So if you look at, this isn't in the book, but I'll give you an example. So Wheaton College, it's in Wheaton, Illinois, Chicago suburbs, sort of a flagship evangelical institution. Several years ago, they had a huge to-do. What was happening is that a African-American woman professor there put on a hijab and as a way to, to express solidarity with Muslim Americans. And her picture went worldwide. So now, if you're Wheaton, Wheaton College was on a giant fundraising campaign. A fundraising campaign was going to raise a lot of money from older white Christians. And now the face of the college is an African-American professor in a hijab. That's not going to go real well. And they couldn't, it became a threat to their fundraising campaign. So she was ended up, ended up having to go. It became, the discussion was over because she said, she made some comments about Muslims and Christians worshiping the same God. And so there was a theological part to this, but really the image part was different. That was not the image that the college wanted to project, certainly to its donors. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bob Smetana. He's an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee and he has over two decades of experience covering religion, spirituality, and ethics. We're speaking today about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. 
Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Bob Smitana. He's an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee who has over two decades of experience in covering religion, spirituality, and ethics. Today we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. Well, in our first segment, we were really looking at the landscape that was before, what the expectations were leading into the COVID pandemic of 2019. And as you mentioned, that pandemic really put pressure on fissures that were already long present in the structures of mainline churches and American Christianity and even American religion generally. And so now we're moving into kind of the second part of your book where you're looking at what fractured and why. One of the groups that really comes to the fore in this section of the book and they go by various names, but the kind of umbrella term is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And then I was introduced to another term, the nons, N-O-Ns, as well. And I wonder if you could talk to us briefly about the nuns and the nons here. Sure. So, yeah, so a couple of things. The word nuns comes from, it's an artifact of the way religion polling is done. So if you get called to do a survey about religion polling, or if you do an online survey, that's what your religious affiliation. So you're Christian. What kind of Christian are you? Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are you Hindu, Buddhist? And then it's a nun, like none of the above. Well, a growing number of people are none of the above. It's about 30% of the population now. It used to be about 7 or 8%. Now it's about 30%. So, and that's really been the last couple of decades. So when the group began growing, people started saying, well, they, they call them the unaffiliated, but the nuns. These are mostly younger, mostly white. I think one of the mistakes that people think, people think that it's mostly white, educated people. It's actually not mostly white, educated people. There are educated people who don't go to church, but there's also people who haven't finished high school, don't have a college education, work blue-collar jobs, all kinds of other things. So, in fact, here's an interesting factoid. Most likely you go to church is the person the college educated. The least likely is someone who describes himself as lower class. So, we think this is like people get educated, they go to church, they leave their religion. That's not always the case. There are people who are, the nuns tend to be unaffiliated. That doesn't mean they're atheists. It means they're disconnected. So some are young, but a lot of them are just disconnected from everything in life. They're, just, they're not married. They haven't gone to college. They don't join everything. And that's a bigger problem in American life is that people don't join. But the nuns are this kind of growing group that is spiritual, but not religious, not interested in organized religion. Now, there's a subgroup of that that are intentionally secular, who are really interesting, who are saying, my life is secular, I'm going to live it that way. They're often identified as atheists too, but they're trying to build a life on secular ethics. That's a subset of the nuns, the bigger group of just the unaffiliated, who have just no affiliation, no connection to all kinds of social institutions. So the nuns, there's two different kinds of nuns. So there's the non-white Christians, which are growing, right? So the number of Christians who are 
not white has grown. So especially on young people that are the same size as white Christians. There's also the growth of non-denominational Christians, which is one of the largest Protestants group now. So a lot, a lot of this has to do with disaffiliation. So the, that group has a lot to do with like lack of faith in larger institutions. But we also have this group that, that people in the future of American religion is going to be multi-ethnic. For example, one in four congregations now identifies as multi-ethnic. But what we haven't seen is, and that's mostly people of color coming to white churches. What you see very little of is white people going to churches of color. You're not seeing that kind of backwards thing. And as those churches become more diverse, you get more diversity, you also can get more uh, conflict because all of a sudden people are really talking to each other. Instead of sitting side by side, they're in conversation with each other. And that becomes problematic when people tell you what they feel and they aren't accepted. And this is one of the things I want to make sure that listeners really understand is that we tend to think about these divisions in rather simple categories, religious, non-religious, Christian, non-Christian. One of the things that your book, Reorganized Religion, does so well is it really begins to dig into the complexity underneath these simple divisions. And so one, and you've begun to touch on it here, but I'd really love for you to speak about it more, is that within the non-religious or the non-religious, we have another very interesting complexity or distinction. And I forget exactly who said it, but we can characterize the non-religious as, quote, dropouts. And you then contrasted them with secular believers who are much more politically engaged. And so one type of non-religious person or person who is pulled away from organized religion is withdrawn from the political activity of society. The other one plunges into it. Talk to us about the non-religious and the secular as political animals here. So, so a couple things. Folks who are secular, who kind of identify as intentionally secular. This is drawn well from a book called The Secular Surge, which is kind of a longer look at this. They tend to be civically engaged, but the civic engagement is almost always political. It's their joinage, they join political. They also organize their way. They like they have an identity that says, I'm secular, here's what I'm gonna do. Then you have a group of people who drop out. So there let me take a little bit of a side here. There's some real interesting studies about the way that religion affects health. So people who go to worship services, for example, or engage in religion tend to be healthier than people who don't. And they die, they live longer, they have better health. We don't know what that, why that is. We don't know if it happens to be that you're a person who's a joiner, you have good habits and you're socially connected in that. Or if it's, or if, we don't know if healthier people who are most socially connected are tapping into choose church, or if they're, so we don't know if it's causal or correlated. But what's interesting is there's some studies now that show that people who are intentionally secular also have fairly good health. The people who have worse health are people who are religious but not engaged, the kind of dropouts, right? They're spiritual, not engaged. They have worse health than other folks. So I, this kind of gets to something that is really important. One of the other parts of the book is I'm making a kind of argument for the importance of organized religion. That organized religion is really important. So we, it, it's important in the lives of individual people. It's important in the lives of those congregations. It's important in the lives of the community. It's important in the lives of the nation. So if you look in your, if you were in, say, go in your town, you were to say, what happens if all these religious groups disappear? Then you start to say, who's going to do the food pantry? Where are people going to gather if there's a disaster and they need a place to stay? Who's doing the tutoring programs? Who's resettling refugees? Who's doing all this? Who does disaster relief? Disaster relief is hugely reliant on religious people. 
It's not that secular people don't do those things. Secular charities don't do those things. They do. But religious groups do them as well. They're an important partner in this. And the other part is they have resources. They have a building. So where does AA mean meeting built? Where do you have voting? Where do you have community meetings? In the church, because the church owns a building. And the building has space that can be available to the public for free. And they are in the neighborhood and they have organized. So what kind of other word we use for church is congregation. What happens in a congregation? People gather. They learn something about how to do, make the world a better place and become better people. Then they're sent out to do, to make the world a better place. And that church, the congregation has all their phone numbers and knows how to motivate. It becomes a channel for all their energy. That's very in their kind of beliefs. That's different than a group of people who are spiritual or have values or secular, but they have no organizing structure to put those values into us. So if we lose organized religion, we're losing something really vital. And so you have people who think two things. One, you have people in churches who say, well, good riddance to those people who left because they weren't real Christians. And to which I say, you built all these institutions based on them being part of it. They're gone. Then you have a problem, right? You can't sustain this without them. And two, you are leaving a giant hole in the safety net. And the ironic thing is that as organized religion declines in America, America still relies heavily on organized religion and institutions to do all the things they used to do with fewer people and less money. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bob Smetana. He is an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee, and he has over two decades of experience in covering religion. He's currently the national reporter for Religion News Service. Today we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. Okay, I want to dig deeper into what you were just saying, because you just said if we were to pull organized religion out of the public sphere, there would be a tremendous hole that no other organization could really step up and fill. And so you're making an argument for organized religion. However, in your book, Reorganized Religion, you also note that most of the organized religion in America today is deeply influenced by ideas of how a corporation should be formed and managed. And so we have a corporatization structure that is largely the default structure of organized religion. And so I want to ask you particularly, is it that corporatized structure that you want to see maintained? Or would you propose, if you will, a reorganized structure that would supplant and maybe push out that more corporatized structure and why? Oh, that's a really good question. So that has a couple layers to it. Let me think for one second as I answer that. So there's a couple of layers to that. One of the layers is, so I had earlier that the average congregation has shrunk from 137 people to 65. Here's the kind of ironic thing. At the same time, the average person goes to a bigger and bigger church. So the average person goes to a church with 350 people. They go to a big church. So what we've had is people consolidate. We've had kind of what they call the Walmart effect, right? So if you're going to go to church, you're going to go to a big church. And those big churches are... People give less, they attend less, and they volunteer less. So it's, you look at a big church and you say, that is a sign of thriving religion in America. And Mark James, who's a sociologist at Duke, would make the argument, that might be a sign of the decline of America. You just don't know it, right? So that's one problem, one issue. And those congregations, are, so one thing that's happened is organized religion, the ones churches that are successful and numerically successful are doing things 
that are weakening them, like they're losing all the connective tissue. So they are putting all the power in the hand of a few people, either staff-driven model or a clergy-driven model. Sometimes they do it for, for theological reasons. Sometimes they do it for efficiency reasons. Right? We had this whole thing of make the church into a business. And you put all power. So what you have told people is that their job is to show up, to consume the religion, and then to give and do their part as a cause. What you've told them is they're not really needed except as long, they're needed as long as they do those things. But they're not needed if they have an idea, hey, maybe we can do something different. They don't have a buy-in to say, I'm really responsible for this thing. If I don't show up, it won't happen. So you've lost, you've lost that kind of congregational identity, the connective tissue. I'm, I've got become convinced that we have also lost something in the country because many congregations used to be ruled by what's called congregational governance. You'd have to sit down every month have a meeting, decide how to spend the money, what you're going to do in programs, and you'd have to hash it out together. You'd have to learn. The reason we have rabbit's rules of orders, which govern large group meetings of legislative bodies, is because of someone who's trying to organize their church meeting, Ethan Roberts, was organized, right? Those, those are meant to organize church. An orderly way of, for large groups of people to talk to each other, resolve differences, get things done. So we've lost that kind of ability to talk to each other. So, so that's happened. So people go to big churches where they're sort of can consume the religious good and they are, they can participate on a low level of thing. That created kind of transactional religion. So the transaction goes two ways. One is people go to church, go, I'm going to come to your church if I know what you're, if you give me what I want. As long as you give me what I want, I'll come there. As soon as you don't give it to me, I'm leaving. The other part is the church says, you can be part of us only if you do these things. And if you don't do these things, then you're out. Well, then you don't have trust. You don't have real relationship. You have groups of people that aren't community. So that's problematic. The second thing is you lose the, and this is an unintended consequence of this. As people have gone to bigger churches, smaller and smaller churches become smaller and smaller. But those churches tend to be in neighborhoods close to where people live. They're connected to people. So they can deliver services. So for example, I said earlier that disaster relief relies heavily on religious groups. In fact, we're seeing a huge religious movement in, or a huge example of this in Florida right now, where you've had a you know, tropical storm, a tornado, and a hurricanes, right? So you have thousands and thousands of religious volunteers helping with the rebuilding process. One of the reasons they can do that is because there's probably congregations in all the areas hit by the hurricane, and those congregations have water and electricity and power and space for people to become home basis for. So you have a place to deliver services. You could probably go, and I live in a small town in Northern Illinois, you could go to almost any of the churches in town and get some help if you needed it. You ran out of gas, you can get money for gas. You need some groceries, you can get some groceries. You could, well, those congregations are going to disappear. And if they disappear, then the only way to go to church is to go to somewhere, which is a big church, which is far away from you live. So that eliminates access, both from people who live in the neighborhood, but also you're going to have to have a car. You're going to have to have a certain kind of level of success in life in order to be part of that. So it drives, means that certain people can no longer access that religion. I, I was having lunch with some friends who were pastors the other day. And they kept saying all this pressure to be the leader. So one of the things that happened among evangelical Protestants in particular and other groups as well, as staff-driven models accelerated and became more acceptable, is that the pastor became a leader first not a shepherd, not a, someone who knows their congregation, but a leader. And there's this tremendous pressure to become the great leader. So 
it does two things. One, it shapes them in a certain way. And if you look at corporate America, it's not always the best leadership, right? So Jack Welch, for example, at GE, became the model for uh, the great leadership. Well, the business world is rethinking Jack Welch and saying, maybe he wasn't such a great leader. Then maybe GE didn't turn out so well, and he was not the greatest at boss and created an unhealthy work environment. They don't want to recreate that anymore. But oh, you have thousands of pastors who are trained to be like Jack Welch, be hard to their people, to be pressing them all the time, to be kind of the great leader in church. And they were taught that the church will rise and fall on your leadership. That puts all the pressure on the, the pastor, which they can't handle. And it makes the church people think that the pastor is the person responsible for this instead of saying, I'm part of it. So instead of you have a bunch of peers who are trying to build things together with a, a pastor who's in charge, because in every group needs a leader, that person becomes a center of life and nobody, no human being can live up to that long term. The the clearest example of this to me in your book, Reorganized Religion, has to do with exactly what you were just saying, pastor training conferences. And there's one pastor in particular who said, you're either on the bus with us or we're throwing you off the bus and you should see the pile of bodies behind our bus. I'm paraphrasing, but it was almost that. And this is exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's two things for that. So that's Mark Driscoll. So that pastor of Marshall Church out in Seattle was a kind of church that rose and was great and huge, and then it just imploded because of really dysfunctional leadership. But there's some context. There's a book called Good to Great, which became a kind of secular Bible for church leaderships. And there's a kind of idea in there that you have to get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off. And then you have to put the right people in the right seats. But it's a business thing. Like, how do you get... There's there's kind of that's true, right? You want to get make sure that people are aligned with what you're doing and that they are that it's a good match, especially for staff. But what it becomes is it's a way to get rid of people, right? So you, you got to do it my way. I'm the bus driver. You're going where I want to go and you get along or you're off. And then Driscoll took it to an extreme and said, basically, you know, there's a, there, he said there's a mountain of bodies underneath the bus and we're going to run you over, right? You get out of the bus or we run you over, which is a little more extreme. But there's this kind of idea that one, the pastor's a driver. They're going to tell you where to go. And two, that the, the people on the bus are there only to do what the driver says. Instead of saying, well, what if the bus is going the wrong way? What if the bus is not going to the right direction? What if the problem's in the bus? And if that's the problem. Or what if people need to be convinced that this is the right way to go or persuaded that this is the right way to go? That model doesn't work for that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bob Smetana. He is an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee, and he has over two decades of experience in covering religion, spirituality, and ethics. He currently works as national reporter for Religion News Service. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church, and Why It Matters. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Bob Smetana. He's an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee who has become one of the most respected and well-known religion reporters in the country. He currently works as national reporter for Religion News Service, and today we're talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church, and Why It Matters. In our last segment, we 
touched on the corporatization and what you call the Walmartification of many religious congregations and how they grow by pulling in smaller groups and really siphoning off and poaching attenders from smaller churches. But there's another trend that you talk about in your book, Reorganized Religion, which fascinated me, a kind of small church movement. And the quotation that really rang out for me was, it was a husband and wife co-pastoring situation. And the husband said to the wife, you know, I think our community may almost be too big. I'd love it if it were smaller. Could you talk to us about that counter trend against the big Walmart effects? Yeah. So there's there really two kinds of churches in America. There are mega churches or big churches, right? So, and there are micro churches, which are small churches. And then really, but kind of one thing is disappearing of the small congregations. I mean, the mid-sized congregations. Well, and the, the funny thing is that if you have a congregation of more than 200 people, you are in a, one of the biggest churches in America. You're in the top 25% of churches in America. So I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is I think that many people who go to church are not aware how bad it is or the kind of dire straits that many congregations are in right? because they're not experiencing it. They're going to bigger churches. So one of the most interesting churches I visited was church up in Spring Green, Wisconsin. It's a Pentecostal kind of church, very small congregation. It's called Cornerstone, Cornerstone Church, Spring Green. When I went up there, there was like a dozen people. It's like being in the church with the apostles, right? Very small congregation. And they moved out there. And so the pastor, this folks had been in Madison, Wisconsin, then he moved out to Spring Green, kind of started his church. The church is really involved in the community, right? So they have a space that's big enough to own community meals. They're, they're housing refugees or helping resettle refugees. They're doing all kinds of work. And the, the pastor, though, has had to make some changes. So one, he's bivocational. He's an IT person, does IT. He also is a volunteer for, they have a volunteer fire department. So he's the ambulance chief. So he's involved in there. And his wife is in the city council. So they're very involved in the community. They're just small and that's the way it goes. And they had really, they were doing better, but they were shattered over COVID. So you've got lots of congregations that are very small that are having to think, how do we rebuild this thing? It means different. It means that you might have to, Clergy might have to have a different job. It means that lay people are going to have to play a bigger and bigger role. It may mean that you don't have a building or you have a smaller building because a building can be a real problem, right? If you've got a great big building, too, you've got too much building, too few people, that can be a real problem. So there's all kinds of kind of creativity happening in this, but this is what we are kind of looking at things where you'll probably have tens of thousands of churches that may not stay open very much longer because there's just not enough people. And that those congregations are either going to have to figure out how do they, one, how do they adapt, but two, how do they rethink themselves? Do they want to close? Do they want to restart something new? And how do they use those resources? So I was, I wrote about a congregation in Chicago that I used to go to called Grace Covenant Church, just closed after they had kind of had starts and steps had gone really well. They're more than a hundred years old. They had a couple of times in their Church history sort of declined, then grown, declined and grown. And then after COVID, they just could not figure it out anymore. So they had 30, last three years have been really good, but the last two or three years closed down. What they decided is to sell the church and to let other people give those money to start new congregations. The nice part about this, this is not like a terrible thing, is for congregations right now, they are not going to go back to where they were. Right? It's just not going to happen. We're not going to go back to the world where people... Because they were set up for a world where it said, people are going to come to our church. And so we want to make sure that they know when they show up that this is the right church for them. Or they would know that this is the best church in the world. 
and we're right and everybody else is wrong. But often it was like, we want to make sure when you show up, you go, this is a good fit for you. You should come here. But the expectation was that people would come and be part of this congregation. Now people don't see themselves as part of that. So you got to rethink everything. And it may mean, sometimes I think that congregations need, so there's a thing uh, in running called couch potato to 5K which is a way to get people who haven't run to be. I almost think there needs to be a couch potatoes or 5K program for congregational health to give people slow, steady ways they can build up their base to figure out, okay, we're healthy. Now we can have discussions about what do we do now? Because it's a lot of tension, right? You have to know it's that. And you've got to have good trust. And then you also have to say, we're in this for the long haul. So we're going to have to build our internal infrastructure and relationships so that we're strong enough to have the really hard conversations and that we're also sustainable for the long term. So this raises another aspect of your book, Reorganized Religion, that really struck me as I was reading from chapter to chapter. In addition to the kind of corporatization of America and thinking about numbers, I began to notice, so there's the Pew Charitable Trust, there's Public Religion Research Institute, there's the Barna Group, there's Lifeway Research, which is an offshoot of the now defunct Lifeway Christian Resources. But we are, we seem as Christians, as faith people, to be obsessed with our numbers. And we are creating more and more organizations to give us information about ourselves. And I wanted to ask you to reflect on that. What does it mean that we're looking at our numbers so scrupulously and we've created these organizations to give us sort of survey after survey of our religious landscape? What does that indicate to you? So it indicates a couple of things. One, that religion is really important. And religion is really important. So I say, I don't, I think we need more data on religion because what's happened to a good number of things I can tell you about religion. I love religion polling. It's great. It gives you a kind of big picture of what's happening. It gives you an idea of where people are for public trends. You know, and PRI, for example, looked at a lot of kind of public policy. So how do people feel about immigration? How do people feel about poverty? How they feel about same-sex marriage? How they feel about all kinds of kind of social issues? Is the country going in the right direction? So one of the downsides of public polling is this. You only measure what you look for. Do you ever see Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park, I love Jurassic Park. The best part of Jurassic Park, so in Jurassic Park, they think they have all the animals. Jurassic Park is, if you don't know, but a few people don't know, it's a novel about people that recreate dinosaurs and they're going to have a theme park. But they make all the dinosaurs female, so they think they have control of the dinosaurs. So they count the dinosaurs every day. Every day, they have the same number of dinosaurs because they only count what they're looking for 200 dinosaurs. They find them. Then they ask, so that, then they try to change the software and say, find all the dinosaurs in the park. And they find there's hundreds more of the dinosaurs. They didn't know were there because they weren't looking for them. So in public polling, we've done a couple of things. One, we have aggregated people into kind of categories. So instead of denominations, so instead of Episcopalians and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, all who are different, they all get aggregated, some into mainline, some into evangelical. And, and then we have Black Protestants and we have Catholics. These are all diverse traditions with lots of folks with different ideas on how to live out their faith. But we consolidate them because they vote in certain patterns. And that's what people are interested in. Colin is often about voting. So what we know about people is they vote in a certain thing. So the, the word evangelical, for example, this is my hobby horse, say Gallup. Gallup, and when, so evangelicals became really a public interest in the mid-70s when Jimmy Carter was. 
always on that's year of the EMDO. Everyone wants to know about. So there were some decisions made that, for example, in Gallic, they would ask you if you're evangelical or born again. But then they would say, are you white? If you're white, you are. But if you're black, you can't be evangelical. If you're Catholic, you can't be evangelical. Not because you don't identify that, but because you don't vote in the same kind of ways as the other two groups. So what people want to know about certain voting and behavior. So we see, we define groups as voting because we're looking for their voting path. And we've excluded people who don't vote like them. So some of our religious categories have become kind of proxies for social patterns. And we're not looking for the kind of breadth and depth of their religious life. So we don't see the diversity in groups or because we're only looking at the white evangelicals. So we say a white evangelicals voted for Trump. Yes, because you looked at them. But if you looked at all evangelicals and didn't do the white indicator, you might find a different story. But Catholics, right, would be different because Hispanic Catholics and white Catholics vote differently. And they have some different ideas about things. So you get access to that, but what you lose is the kind of diversity of religion. And some of the big, there are some big congregational surveys, which are also really important. I think it's important to know what's going on in the world, but I would like better religion reporting. That is more interesting than things outside of politics because it can reshape. And then, then you have people who look at the poll and say, I don't like that person. Why? Because they fit this category. Not because I know them, not because I see them, not because I understand how they operate in the world. But I saw how they voted, and I don't like it. So this gets into a bigger problem in American culture. So we were more, it's a much more diverse, much more pluralist, excited it was. We're also more divided because of something called the big sort, which is basically the idea that Americans in the recent decades have sorted themselves, and they only want to live with and go to church with and associate with people who look like them, who think like them, who vote like they do, who have the same consumer choices they do. So people have started segregating themselves into large, and they stack all those identities together. So I can find often from where you live or what religion you are or how you voted. Right? So, so if you look at, for example, in American religion, the makeup of both parties, white Christians vote Republican as a majority, everybody else, Christians of color, Buddhists, Jews, everybody else votes Democrat. They sort into those things. So then you don't have cross-cutting across those things. So what happens when you have big homogenous groups? The way... Well, one of that leads to is what they call affective polarization, where I make, I can get things done by telling my group what's wrong with the other group and why they're the enemy and why we have to, why we can't cooperate with that. Because cooperation is not seen as advancing my identity as group and my powers group. So if you look at several of the kind of major social issues, you look at um, abortion, you look at immigration, there's a lot of consensus on those issues. People want to reform immigration, for example. But the two parties, which make up these two massive groups, can't cooperate with each other because they don't want to be seen as cooperating with the enemy. You can't make fun of the enemy. This is why jokes are hard to do right now. You can't make fun of your own side because you make fun of your own side. You're like, oh no, you are, are you a, are you without the other parties, right? You're a liberal, you're a conservative. You're from the other team. So this comes into churches, and so it comes in and says, so at the same time, churches need to become more diverse and multi-ethnic. People bring with them their expectations that I only want to be people who are like me. And we saw that. I saw this. You see this in a sermon. If you get a sermon there, I was watching a sermon of a church started talking about the left. It was about, it, there was a get out the vote sermon. The left does this. The left does that. And then we're going to have to tell them about Jesus. Well, I'm like, anyone who, do, who uh, identifies as the left has been told by the church, we don't like you. They're never going to come there because they don't like you. You're not welcome here. You're not, you're not one of us. 
You've been probably been to progressive churches where it's the right and those people. Well, then if you are identifying that in that congregation, which they might be, you're going, well, I'm not going to tell people what I think and I'm not welcome here. So you can't become more diverse and you can't have these cross-cutting identities where people work together because people have chosen to sort themselves into these different groups and they don't like the group, not because of who the person is, but because of their kind of marker. You look at their marker and say, oh, you're a womb or you're, you're a right-wing nut job. And so I don't want to deal with you. So you can't build community with people who hate each other. And people, no one's going to go to church where they know that you hate them, right? They go and they, oh, you don't love us. We're, why would we think that Jesus loves us? Maybe we think Jesus loves us, but we don't think you love us. So you conclude your book, Reorganized Religion, with an image from a week when you were reporting down in Tennessee. And in that same week, you had a tornado go through the north part, north of Nashville, where you were living. And then in that same week, south of Nashville, a a small mosque community was burned to the ground with racial slurs spray painted on the walls. And you present us with a kind of mosaic choice. You know, when Moses says, I present to you with death and life, and I urge you to choose life. You look at that and you say religion was responsible for the massive response to the devastation of the tornado, helping people and healing that community. Religion was also responsible for the torching of that mosque. And you're, you're pushing us towards a hopeful future where we're choosing the better of those two options. But you say religion gives us both. So I'd, I'd like to invite you now to take my listeners to your vision of the future. How will religion reorganize and what will it mean for us? So that's a good question. I wish I had the answer, but here's what I hope. I do think that we're in a point where people have to choose what do they want to do. And now, well, let me start by saying that despite its flaws, organized religion and religious people have often built institutions that care for the, help the whole community to thrive, even if people they don't like, right? So they build hospitals, they build schools. One of the stories I tell in my, in the book about is a story about my mom who was a child of immigrants who wasn't able to go to college, was going to end up being working in a factory, got a scholarship that was started for a hospital to study nursing. The hospital was started by Episcopalians. Well, I'm sure in the 1800s, I'm sure in the 1800s, those Episcopalians did not like Catholic. And she got this scholarship at a time the kind of anti-Catholic furor was at its height. So in the mid-1950s, 60s, well, as for much of the, the century, much of the 20th century, Catholics were seen as suspicion in America so by the Protestant things. But two major Christian magazines, the Christian Century, which is seen as the kind of the champion of progressive Christianity, and Christianity Today, Evangelical Christianity, both ran these long articles about what happens when the Catholics take over. They become half of the country. The world is coming to an end. So in 58, Christianity runs this, today runs a story. The Catholics are going to read half the population. We, population, we are done. A Hospital started by Episcopalians or Protestants gives my mom, who was a child of Catholic immigrants, a scholarship which changes the course of her life. And there's two things I want to take about that. One, people have always built institutions that are bigger than themselves, even with their own failings. And there are many. Religious organized religion can hurt people. You know, it can harm and heal, right? So we have to choose which we want to do. The second thing is the lives we have right now are, we're, made possible by the faithfulness and the action of generations before who built institutions and built schools, built things and invested in ways to help their communities thrive. 
And so I think not just about now, I think about all people who made my life possible. And then I think, oh, in 50 years, there are people who are depending on religious people now to make the right decisions, to invest in their welfare, about people they don't know, don't look like them, who don't think the same thing, but still they do the right thing because of that. So I think that I tell people now, you hold a future of organized religion in America in your hands. The choices you make will determine what the future of America looks like. Because America is, I heard actually recently a really interesting quote that America is deconstructing, right? It's just as the American story is deconstructing, the American identity is deconstructing, We're trying to figure out who we are. And all the incentives are to demonize the other side, whoever you dislike, and throw gas on the fire. We are in a burning house. And there's a, to quote it, to quote Star Trek, only a fool fights in a burning house, right? And so if the house is burning down around you, there are lots of important issues. LGBT inclusion, support, immigration, all the kinds of other things are important. How we deal with identity and what's the, what do we teach our children? These are all super important. But if you fight about those long enough, by the time somebody wins, there'll be nothing left. So I'm really, really thinking about like how to, and what the, what churches knew, churches have, and other religious groups have at their core, the kind of answers that American society needs. They have answers on how to form identity. They have answers on how to deal with the fact to do self-examination. They have answers on how do you make amends for the things you did wrong. They have answers for how to congregate and motivate people to do the right thing. They have answers on how to seek the forgiveness. They have answers how to reconcile. They have answers for how to put broken things back together. Churches know how to mend things at their core. And other religious groups do, right? The mending of the world, the thriving of society. That's what their sociological function is, right? To make things better or make things less terrible or to make things better. A lot of other institutions are saying, oh no, they are fighting. They're throwing gas on fire. Look at social media, look at politics. Nobody's interested in like the healing of America. It's interesting, how do our group win? What America doesn't need is more people to do that and to give up the things that churches do well that help everyone thrive. Now, not everyone's going to trust churches. They do lots of things wrong. They can do wrong. Not everyone is going to trust institutions, right? People have lost faith in institutions. And I think one thing churches could realize is that the world has changed. And one of the things that's changed is that people don't think the institutions matter. They don't trust your church they don't come to church not because your church did something wrong, but because they just the world around them changed. They don't need think they need you anymore. So you have to build trust and community. And the more you buy into the polarization, the less likely it is that people say, "Oh, this might be for me." And I think also I would like religious groups to do two things. One is to not do dumb things, right? The second is to tamper back their. This might sound counterintuitive, but tamper back their sort of aspirations. And there's a, a large Protestant domination, which is the whitest domination in America, which has passed a resolution recently. They're going to eliminate white supremacy. Awesome. Really important. I think they are, one, they're not strong enough to do that. Two, they haven't done the self-examination to say, maybe you should start with, why is no one of color coming to my church? We will look at invite some people who are different to be part of what we're doing. 
How do we make a space for them? So that that's the low level stuff people could do to start to rebuild their community, start to become more diverse, start to think, how do we become better? And then you'll be strong enough to tackle the big stuff. But I think churches still think, there's a sociologist told me this great, give me this great example of what's basically the Hamlet problem. This is one of my favorite chapters of the book. This is basically the idea that religious communities and pastors have been taught that they're the center of life. Everything flows down from them. Things are going well, it's because they're great. Things are going poorly, it's because they're terrible, right? Church is declining, let's fire the pastor, it's their fault. They're not Hamlet anymore. They are a bit player in a larger drama that's going on around them. They're going to have to adapt and be part of it. And they have something very important to offer, but they're not the center of life anymore. And the more that people realize that and say, I'm part of this community, I have to find my way. And how do I help everyone and cooperate with other folks? I was writing a story yesterday about lots of people have, the religious people have different views of same-sex marriage, but it's legal, sort of here to stay. So one of the most interesting stories right now, the Senate is about to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, which will make this illegal, would be the first law because the, the most of the decisions for same-sex marriage and interracial marriage, right, are uh, by based on court decisions. There's no federal law saying this, so they're going to pass this federal law. This law is based basically on what's called the Utah Compromise. So one of the biggest points of same-sex marriage, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, used to be more commonly known as Mormons. They spent a lot of time. They lost. In their state, though, they also started, when Utah, mostly Latter-day Saints, in the state, they began to form relationships with people who are LGBT activists. They began to say, we're going to live together. Our church may think same-sex marriage is sinful, but there are a bunch of people who are LGBTQ in our community. They have marriages. We don't want them discriminated against. It. They formed a compromise. Now that compromise is basically the heart of this respectful marriage bill. It is a way, because the two sides saw themselves as people who are worth investing time in and being in relationship with. And religious leaders could do more of this. Say, like, we, if, you, if your religion is based on, and I'm talking about Christianity mostly now, that everyone's made in God's image, they're important, we want them to thrive, then that should shape how you relate to other people. Doesn't mean you need to change. People think, I got to change my doctrine. And I got to do it. You don't have to change your doctrine. What we're talking about is how do you apply your doctrine? How do you live in the world? How do you create a world that meets the kind of goals that you have? And people could choose that. It's so there's like everything's waiting for people to choose that. Like the world is there for them and future generations are depending on them. So why would you yell at people on Twitter? Why would you spend all your time arguing on Facebook? Why would you tell people you're not welcome here? You can be honest to yourself and say, this is what we believe. And this is why we do what we do. And we're going to do that faithfully. And we are your neighbor. There's, a, there's something, one last thing I'll say. I'm a religion reporter. So I'm not a pastor or a theologian. So I've had to define like, what is my relationship to these organizations? So there's two things I do. One, I don't have to win when I talk to people. I could just listen. And most time when people talk about religion in America, they either want to reinforce their own beliefs or they want to tell the other person why they're wrong. I'm not interested in either of those things. I'm interested in how they live their life. Tell me more about you. Because of that, I see myself as a neighbor. I'm a neighbor to these religious groups. If they do well, we all do well. If they do poorly and do things that harm us, like my neighbor does something that harms us, that affects all of us. So I want them 
to do well so that we all thrive. And I think there's something you could learn if you're a religious leader or religious church member to say, oh, how do we be a good neighbor? How do we help our neighbors thrive? Doesn't mean you have to stop being yourself. Doesn't mean, but you doesn't mean you have to buy into this kind of group thing that says, I have to hate the enemy. Because then, you know, what's the old saying, the eye for an eye leaves everybody blind? That's what, and, and what will happen to go back to the thing, comment before, the house is on fire. You don't need more gasoline. You need people to put it out before it gets worse and to say, how do we rebuild something together? How do we say, I did something wrong? Or, oh, okay, how do I make that right? How do I hear other people's points of view and say, oh, how do I adapt to that and be in relationship with you in community? And that is what the world needs. More of that and less of the other stuff. But if people don't, people could choose and people throughout history have chosen the other. They've chosen to burn things down. And we'll get the world that we choose. And I hope they choose wisely, according to Indiana Jones. Well, Bob Smetana, I want to thank you because your book, Reorganized Religion, did two things for me that I really appreciate. First of all, it answered questions that I had walking into the book about why America is like it is in 2022, moving into 2023. But the other thing that you did that is so brilliant about your book is you raised questions I didn't know that I had, and you showed to me why I should be asking these questions as well. And then you brought me to answers about those questions too. Thank you for taking the time to research and to write this book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it today with me and my listeners. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for doing the show and all the work that you do to make this possible. We've been speaking today with Bob Smetana. He is an award-winning reporter and a Pulitzer grantee who has become one of the most respected and well-known religion reporters in the country. He's currently the national reporter for Religion News Service. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church, and Why It Matters. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>